Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor Joe. Appreciate that. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, first of all, good morning, uh, Second Baptist Church. I have not been here before, but I have a number of friends in your congregation and uh, delighted to meet up with them here today. And it's going to be a little bit of fun and kind of interaction afterwards. Um, Tom Holozowski and Gretchen uh, and I uh, are going this afternoon to the 50th year class reunion, uh, the class of 1972 at Amherst Regional High School. And uh, <laughs> yeah, wow, unbelievable. I'll, be I'll bet you they've aged a little bit. What do you think? <laughs> anyway, we were going through the list of participants, uh, uh, Tom and Gretchen and I, uh, and, you know, to pray over them. And it was a little disturbing because about 90% of the names, I had absolutely no idea who they were. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Um, and they probably don't remember me, or if they do, it's not in a good circumstance. Uh, because uh, when I hit the ninth grade, uh, I fell in love with drugs. And uh, I spent uh, most of the next four years uh, on drugs of every imaginable type, whatever I could get my hands on. And um, for that reason, I probably skipped half of my classes and was stoned in the other half. So you might be asking the question, how did you graduate? And the answer is, I have absolutely no idea. Grace of God. But I have a, I have a burden on my heart. I loved your prayer time earlier, and if you think to pray for me this afternoon, I feel like I need to redeem something because David Cashin, if anybody remembered him at all, they remembered him as the, the drug addict uh, the kid who populated the backseat of a lot of police cars, uh, who uh, was almost sent to juvenile hall. I remember the Amherst police chief saying, one more of these cash in and you're going to juvenile hall. That's, that's what they used to call it. I don't know what they call it today, Department of you know, Junior Justice or something, whatever. Um, and you know, there was only one guy who was willing to dive into the sewer that was my life and push me out, and you know who he is, Jesus Christ. And I... I'm hopeful that today I'll be able to say something about Jesus. So if you think to pray for Tom and Gretchen and me today, pray that God would give us at least one person uh, in this graduating class uh, that we can share the good news with and talk about the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. Because, you know, if I hadn't met Jesus, I wouldn't be here. Not only would I not be in this church, I'm certain I would have been dead. Uh, and that, that's a message that I really hope somebody at this reunion understands that Jesus transforms people. Now, my question for you all today is, why are you here? Now, I'm, I'm sure you've got a lot of reasons. I'm, I'm going to actually broaden the question a little bit. Why are you on planet Earth? Now, this is a wonderful question to ask people. What, what's your purpose? What's your destiny? Why are you here? And uh, I asked this question of a lot of people. I was flying up on the plane uh, here. Uh, first link, I had a great conversation with a gal. I'll call her Elle. And I asked her that question. Uh, I've been going through uh, sort of a little evangelistic method that I have called the seven essential questions of life. And the third question is, what is your purpose? What's your destiny? Why are you here? And as a secular person doesn't know Jesus, uh, she gave me the answer that I hear all the time. I have absolutely no idea, or I am clueless. After she thought about it for a while, she finally said, uh, maybe just to have fun. 
she was in her 20s, and it's like, you know, she's not my age. She's not getting all creaky. See, <laughs> have fun. Well, I'm kind of at that age where that doesn't really cut it very much anymore. Anyway, so why are you here? Now, if you were raised in any kind of uh, a catechistic church background, uh, you might have uh, learned a catechism where when they asked you, what is the chief end of humankind, you learned to say, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, now, obviously, I didn't learn that. Uh, I was raised in an atheist home, so uh, that kind of stuff didn't figure at all. But as Christians, we understand we're here to glorify God and to enjoy His presence, relationship with Him for all eternity. But I want to get a little more specific. What does that really mean for a Christian? What does it really mean that we glorify God and we enjoy Him forever? Well, at the core of that, I think the Christian church tends to give two different answers. And I want to talk about those two different answers today. Let me begin by sharing the first answer, uh, which comes out of my own background, my own testimony of how I met the Lord Jesus. Uh, my sister somehow managed to get me to a Christian conference. I don't know why. I was an atheist. I couldn't care less about Christianity. But finally, she was, you know, the time she was talking to me, I was stoned anyway. And you know, when you're stoned, you don't really know how to say no very well. So anyway, she got me in the car, and we all ended up at this Christian conference. And um, I took my stash, you know, my drugs. And I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll get stoned. We'll have fun with these silly Christians. And that night, I had a roommate by the name of Rich McIntyre, and Rich uh, was a very quiet, gentle, uh, red-haired Christian guy. And by the way, if you're a quiet, gentle, not an evangelistic type, not a Billy Graham type, please don't think that the Lord can't use you, because Rick McIn Rich McIntyre was the guy who led me to Christ, and the reason was he showed me love. That Friday night till about 3 o'clock in the morning, I told him all the reasons why I could not believe the Christian message, why I thought all Christians were idiots. I couldn't understand why anybody would read the Bible for anything. And he wasn't a slouch. He gave me some good answers back. But the main thing he gave me was love. And I was kind of blown away by that. I can remember waking up on Saturday morning and thinking, boy, you sure behaved like a jerk last night. And then the second thought that came, this guy has something I haven't got. And suddenly, a wild, crazy idea of hope came into my mind, Holy Spirit, right? And I thought, maybe there's a way out of this mess. Maybe there's a way through Jesus. Now, I wasn't really convicted of sin. Boy, did I have plenty of sin in my life. But the main thing was, I had a desperate need. And Jesus was willing to meet me at that point. Now, the organization that put together this conference was Campus Crusade for Christ. How many of you, have, oh, it's now called Crew. Anybody heard of that? Okay. Great organization. I, I, love, uh, I love Crew. Uh, and they brought me to Jesus, and they did the initial discipling of teaching me what, it, what does it mean to follow Jesus. And as you can imagine, as an evangelistically oriented organization, their focus was the Great Commission right? In other words, why am I here on planet Earth? 
that I might make disciples of all nations, of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, to, to let them know the good message of Jesus. And very early on, the Lord laid a particular part of the world on my heart for that purpose, and that was the Muslim world, that I was called to share the good news of Jesus with Muslims. Okay, now you really know I'm crazy, right? Not crazy anymore, because God's doing some amazing stuff in the Muslim world. We're going to talk about that a little later. Well, I needed a place to go to kind of sort my life out. I was a pretty messed up kid, too. I mean, you know, I would not have chosen me for, for the team, you know. Only Jesus would choose a guy like me for his team, okay? I needed to get away from all the trouble. I went off to a place called Gordon College, north of Boston, and uh, there I had an, an impact. I mean, I loved Gordon. Gordon was a wonderful place. There were no drugs. There was no alcohol. I could get cleaned up. I could start studying the Bible. I could get to know Jesus. But there's one thing about Gordon that I didn't really like, and that was their emphasis on why are we here. Their focus was something they called the cultural mandate. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard the, the statement of the cultural mandate? Well, if you go to churches, I don't care what the denomination is or what their you know, particular focus is, uh, they will tend to focus on either the Great Commission or the cultural mandate. Now, you are obviously all a Great Commission group, right? And it's like, that, that's what we're about. We're, we're making disciples of all nations. And I do agree with you, that's the priority. But my problem was I assumed that the cultural mandate was just complete nonsense. It was not what I'm about. I'm going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I didn't realize that God still does have a purpose with the cultural mandate, which is the vehicle to the Great Commission. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to begin. I'm going to give you my sermon title now. And uh, I apologize because this is not churchy language. But I promise I have a story to tell behind this particular expression. And it's kind of a question, and the question goes like this. Are you a hell yeah Christian? <laughs> now, that's not very appropriate language for a church. It's even less appropriate at a funeral. <laughs> so let me tell you a story about a funeral that led to salvation. Uh, I was going down to Florida about a month ago. I had my second heart attack. I needed some time to recuperate. And uh, I had a good buddy who just moved to Florida. He said, come on down. We'll give you a couple of days of rest. And, and uh, so I got down there. And one of the first questions I asked him, since I had been his elder and also his pastor, I said, have you found a good church? And he said, yeah, I found a great church. We're going to the cowboy church. <laughs> the cowboy church. What is that? Well, he said, uh, it's, you know, every bear, everybody wears Stetson hats. They, they've all got cowboy boots. And, uh, and it's great. People are coming to Christ like crazy. They had 15 baptisms last week, and they have about that many every month. I'm thinking, wow, now that's interesting. Well, you know, when you really want to figure out what a church is like, the best thing you can do is invite the pastor out to dinner. So that's what we did. Friday night, I had the pastor out for dinner, and he came with his Stetson hat and his cowboy boots and all the rest of this. And so I said to him, so cowboy church, what is that? And he said, well, 
if you think about it, uh, cowboys are a fairly small segment of the American population, ranch hands and people that manage, you know, cattle. It's a pretty small group. But they are kind of the core of a much larger grouping of people that includes, for instance, NASCAR enthusiasts, uh, that includes people that like to go to rodeos. For youth, includes kids that like 4-H, country western fans and music. See, it's quite a, quite a broad segment of, American, of the American population. And he said, the problem is that most churches don't really know how to speak the language of those kind of people. Now, the interesting thing about this pastor is he was actually a ranch hand and for 15 years the manager of a ranch. So he was, I mean, when he put the Stetson on, it was the real thing. Now, I couldn't really do that because, you know, I'm just not a cowboy. I'm sorry, that's not who I am. But that's who he is. And I said, well, how does this work in evangelism? He said, I got a story for you. Sometime back, there was a funeral uh, from a family of country western singers, the, the Bellamy brothers. You may have heard of that group if you're into country western music. So he was going to officiate a funeral. Well, he gets to the funeral, uh, and of course, he's done his homework as a good pastor. He's gone to talk to the family and, you know, find out what are the things I can say by way of eulogy about this person. Uh, so he gets to the funeral, and the, the first thing that happens, which for us might be a little disconcerting, is that the um, pallbearers march in with a casket, and they're all dressed in camouflage. Now, now that tells you that these are people that are into hunting and fishing and, you know, cowboy stuff, and they march down to the front with, with the casket, and the pastor, you know, begins his eulogy. He's about halfway in to, you know, talking about the gentleman and who he was and what he did, uh, and just about halfway in, and all of a sudden, one of the pallbearers lets loose and says, hell yeah! Now, if I'd been that pastor, it'd be like, okay, let's just sort of ignore that expression, or go on with whatever I'm saying. But this guy was totally unflappable. He said, friends, just understand, our brother has just said the amen, <laughs> which is true. That expression in their culture means amen. I agree with you. I agree with your eulogy. When the funeral was over, that young man marched right down to the front looked the pastor square in the eye and says, where do you preach? And the guy told him the address where he was. I will be there on Sunday. And he came to church that Sunday and he met the Lord. Now, what's going on there? What is happening is the pastor understands his people. He understands their culture. He understands their language. He understands their lingo. And he can speak into their world. Now, all of that is what I would call cultural mandate. In other words, he understands their culture, but not just for the sake of understanding the culture, he's using that mandate, that cultural mandate, as a vehicle to express the gospel. So, I made a mistake at Gordon. Yes, Great Commission takes priority, but I also need the cultural mandate as the vehicle to accomplish that Great Commission. Now, let's move on and take a look at a couple of passages from Scripture that relate to this. I want to begin with a passage about the cultural mandate, because many of you apparently haven't heard that. So, let me tell you what Gordon College told me. Uh, the cultural mandate comes from Genesis 1.28, uh, where it says, uh, do you guys stand when you read the Scripture? 
And then, why won't you stand? That, that'll keep you all awake. I know I'm going to put you to sleep, so I got to make sure you're, you know, it's harder to sleep standing than sitting, so, okay. Uh, you can say this with me. Let's read this together. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when I heard this expressed as a cultural mandate, I said, what? I don't see any culture? What are you talking about? You know, fruitful, multiply, subdue, you know, rule over the earth. But one of the things that they pointed out is that this is a command that gets repeated several times. It's repeated after the fall. It's repeated after Noah. And then you get to Genesis chapter 11, and a very unusual thing happens. Humanity is in disobedience to the command to spread out. They're all sticking together at this place called Babel with this big tower. They're all speaking the same language. They all have the same culture, and they are all unified in the rebellion against God. And what does God do? He comes down. He scatters them. He essentially, by fiat, makes them do what he told them to do in the first place. And in every case, what happens? They are speaking new languages new cultures. They don't understand each other. And by the way, do you hear a little echo of the Great Commission there? Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God makes humanity diverse. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is to make it harder for them to rebel. When humanity is unified in the rebellion against God, that's bad news for the gospel. Think about it. Muslim world is unified in its denial of the sonship of Christ. It's tougher to preach the gospel there, isn't it? Communist world, unified in its rejection of the Christian faith. It's tough to preach the gospel there. So what does God do? He scatters us, and actually Acts 17 explains why. In order that some may seek Him, grope after God and find Him. So, cultural diversity, linguistic diversity is not only essential to our task, it's something that we see expressed in how the gospel is going forward. Do you realize, friends, that within 30 years, the Bible will be translated into every living language on planet Earth? We are at the cusp of completing that aspect of the Great Commission. No other religion will ever do that. In Islam, a Quran is not even a, uh, is not a Quran unless it's in Arabic. Okay, they do a few translations, but no other religion will ever do what Christianity is on the cusp of doing, and that is making their scripture available in the mother tongue of every human being on planet Earth. Why? Because in Christianity, there is a cultural mandate, a mandate that is meant to be a vehicle for the completion of the Great Commission. Now that the Bible is in every language, we have a tool any place on earth that we go whereby we can share the good news and give people God's Word in their own mother tongue. So, there is a cultural mandate. It's not the primary thing, but it is definitely the vehicle for the primary thing, which is the Great Commission.
Well, let's take a look at the Great Commission then. That's our next passage. And uh, please stand with me again. Uh, I know this is a very familiar one because you're a Great Commission church. I can hear that. So this will be easy for us to repeat together. Let's, let's say this together. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we're familiar with this passage. It's uh, for churches that have a strong evangelistic emphasis. This is the byword. And you notice I put in highlighting here the key verb in the passage. There's one verb that is in the imperative tense, the must tense, and that is the verb make disciples. Everything else in that passage is dependent upon that imperative verb. Yes, we baptize. Yes, we go. Yes, we teach them all that Jesus taught us, but all of that is to fill the primary command to make disciples. But you know, when you make a disciple, you have really got to get inside that person's head, don't you? You need to understand that person. You need to understand his or her lingo. You need to understand the background that they came out of. You need to understand how is the gospel intending to transform this person and impact not only this person but his or her entire society with the good news of Jesus Christ. For me, working with Muslims, this was the big question. How do I disciple a Muslim to enable him or her to follow Jesus Christ in an incredibly hostile environment? Islamic law teaches that any Muslim who leaves Islam must be put to death. Every system of Islamic law teaches that. So when a Muslim comes to faith in Jesus in any majority Muslim country, they face potential death for doing that. Boy, you've got to make sure your people are solid in the Lord if you're going to ask them to make that kind of a choice, don't you? Major, major thing. Let's go on to our next slide uh, because I want to talk a little bit about uh, what that means. We combine the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. The two go together. The Great Commission takes priority, and the cultural mandate provides the vehicle. Does that make sense? You've got to have a vehicle to drive from here to there. The vehicle is I use the cultural mandate to make the gospel make sense. Let's put it this way. It's kind of like the two wings of a bird, okay? One wing is called faithfulness to Scripture. Uh, if you get away from the Scriptures, if you get away from the principles of God's Word, you're missing the boat. You're missing the point. Uh, if you water it down or you change it in ways that remove it from being faithful to what the Word says, you're, you're not going to do what you need to do in terms of discipling people for Christ. But the other wing of the bird is called relevance. How do I make the gospel make sense, be relevant to the people with whom I work? And you might say that that is the balancing. You need two wings on a bird to fly. 
You've got to be faithful to the Word. You've got to be relevant to the culture. And God's called us to both if we're going to effectively bring the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's go on to our next slide. Um, so, we're combining the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. And uh, let's actually hop over that slide. Uh, I was thinking there might be one. Okay. Let me just give you a couple of case stories uh, or case studies, I, I would say, to illustrate what happened in my life. Okay. I graduated from Gordon College. I've got a calling to take the gospel to the nations. God has given me a focus, the Muslim world. So I go to Bangladesh. And um, first thing that I do for uh, the first year, of course, is I'm studying the language. And I'm learning how, you know, to, to do language study, how to speak the language, how to be able to communicate effectively. At the end of my first year in Bangladesh, I called up my mission leader, uh, Phil Parshall, and, and I said to Phil, um, would you guys like me to translate the four spiritual laws into Bengali and start witnessing? Because, you know, that's how I was led to Christ, four spiritual laws, Campus Crusade for Christ, if for those of you who may be familiar with that particular method of evangelism. And Phil smiled, looked back at me and said, Cashin, for the next two years, we want you to shut up. Because he said, the four spiritual laws makes absolutely no sense to people in this culture. You have to listen to our evangelists and find out how they do things. So, I was actually apprenticed to Hebel Fudzel, uh, who was a Muslim background believer, been a follower of Jesus for 20 years, and he opened me up to a world that was completely unlike anything that I could have ever imagined. He got me to a place where I could have a conversation with a Muslim and know that when I invited him to study the Bible with me, he would say yes. Every single time. Now, that didn't mean they, they came to faith. There was a huge cost. But Hebel got me, and I'm not going to go into all the ways that that was done. It's a long kind of, it, it's a lot of learning. You've got to learn the culture. You've got to learn the needs of Muslims. I'll put it this way. What's the big problem in Islam? Simply this, you cannot know God, you cannot experience God, you cannot have a personal relationship with God. The only thing you can know about God is His law. And here's the problem, you can't keep the law. And every Muslim is looking for grace. Where is God's grace? And I've got a story about that that we're going to finish the sermon with today. Oh my goodness, have I gone that long? <laughs> I'm having too much fun. <laughs> okay, well... Uh, an example of that is the three-point sermon guy becomes a storyteller, okay? I went doing three-point sermons, and nobody followed me at all. You know, the, the, the wonderful farmers with their cows and stuff, and I'm doing my American-style sermon, and it's like, they're not getting it. Got to do storytelling instead. Another thing was, uh, a guy who preaches learns to sing. Now, how much? You want me to take about five minutes and finish? Have I got enough time for that? Okay. Um, would you drone with me? Drone? You, you, it's like humming. You just go, um, and then if you need to take a breath, you just take a breath and, um, and some more. I Muhammad, come Allah, Stop. Now, what have I been singing? From a Muslim point of view, I am singing 
pure, unadulterated heresy. Okay? And it's a Muslim doing the singing. He's singing, I, Muhammad, come, O Muhammad, kamewala, grantor of all desires. I, hey Allah, come, O God, amar bukei, come into my chest. And you sing this song as you toke up on your hash pipe. <laughs> now, how's, how's that for being a good Muslim? If you were to stand on a street corner in Bangladesh and preach that in prose, you might get beaten to death. If you sing it, the Malavis and religious people will clap along. Why? Because music is subversive, right? When you sing something, people don't realize that they're being subverted, and these Sufis would sing songs like this, and it's a way of preaching their message in a way that they don't get themselves killed. So, how do we do this? Beloved, let us love one another, love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not Knoweth not God, for God is love, God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7, and 8. Now, by the way, I can't quote that verse without singing the song. <laughs> okay? I just, you know, try to say First John 4, 7, and 8. I don't know, know quite where to, I've got to sing the song. Music is subversive. Music puts God's Word into our hearts effectively, powerfully. In other words, music is a cultural vehicle to the gospel. And in the Bangladeshi culture, we learn to sing the message of the gospel. Because, number one, the Malavis would clap along, even though we were singing, Jesus, Son of God, the Malavis are clapping along, okay? And at the same time, God's Word is getting implanted in people's hearts. All of that is cultural mandate. Cultural mandate Vehicle used to achieve the goal of preaching the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Final slide. Uh, I think this last one will be the final slide. Um, I'm going to skip over that one. If any of you want to hear about the movement to Christ in Iran, uh, and I'll just say this very briefly, study came out from the University of Utrecht in Holland, secular study that indicated that over a million Iranian Muslims have become Christians. In spite of the fact that that's got a death penalty on it. And the people that are leading this movement are primarily women. So I wrote an article on that. Uh, talk to your pastor. I'd be happy to send you a, a copy of that article. I did interviews with uh, seven Iranian leaders, mostly women, uh, about this movement. And I say that because... Sometimes we think that cultural mandate means slavishly imitating the culture. It does not. In fact, my own mission made this mistake. We figured reach the men and the men will reach the women. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> really doesn't. And we were in danger of creating, because we were slavishly imitating Islamic culture where men are the center of everything and women are just off to the side, they're chattels, they're, they're not important. And we were neglecting the women's ministry because we were imitating Islamic culture, which actually was not gospel. Okay? 
So we were in danger of having a one-generational movement where the men come to Christ, they get old, they die, the women stay Muslim, they lead the kids to Islam, and the Christian message and movement dies out. So this is a beautiful story, the story of women's leadership in the church, in evangelism, in church planting in Iran is a beautiful example of the gospel also transforming culture. We don't just slavishly imitate the culture. We let the gospel transform the culture, which means sometimes we may do things that that culture says, oh, that's inappropriate. Women evangelists, women leading men to Christ. Oh, I got all kinds of stories about that, but I don't have time. Anyway, final thought. Sometimes learning to balance the cultural mandate and the uh, Great Commission mandate will take you into areas where you have to get transformed. And I'll just share this as a final story. Um, I'm sitting in a little town called Kaliakor. I'm renting a little place where I bring Muslims together for Bible study, and I'm trying to plant a church. And uh, all of a sudden, a guy walks in that I don't recognize. And I'm always a little on the suspicious side, you know, secret police, you know, coming to see what I'm up to. And the guy sits down right in front of me, looks me square in the eye, and he says, what does Matthew 121 say? Well, I don't get that question ever from Muslims. So it's like, mm, why do you want to know? And he said, well, uh, Jesus told me to ask you. Jesus told you to ask? How did, how did Jesus do that? Well, the previous night, he'd been in prayer all night to find the way of salvation, and he'd fallen asleep. And in his sleep, he'd had a dream where first his predeceased father and then his predeceased grandfather came to him, and in each case, he'd ask them, what is the way of salvation? How can I know if God will accept my deeds? Have I been following the law enough? And in each case, these predeceased people said to him, we don't know but talk to the one who comes after me. And then a third guy appears in his dream, and I don't know how Muslims recognize this guy when they see him, but they always do. It was Hajjat Isa Masih. It was Jesus Christ. So he got on his knees, and he touched Jesus' feet as a sign of respect. And then he said, Jesus, Jesus, Isa, Isa, tell me the way of salvation. How can I know if God will accept my deeds? Have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Have I worked hard enough? Have I kept the prayers? Have I done all the stuff? And Jesus said, I will show you the way of salvation, but you must go to the missionary in Kaliakor and ask him what Matthew 121 says. Now, mind you, this guy's never seen a Bible. Uh, he doesn't even know what Matthew 121 means. So, uh, you know, I didn't have it memorized then. I, I do now, just in case it happens again. Um, <laughs> we open the Bible, and the passage is the angel speaking to Joseph, saying, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, share, he shall save his people from their sins. And I said, my friend, you can't get to God by the works of the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Only Jesus can save you. And he received the Lord. That was the only Muslim I ever saw come to faith the same day in a conversation. God had prepared him. But it was a shocker for me, too. Why? Because I grew up in Massachusetts, okay? Supernatural things do not happen in Massachusetts. And the reality is that I had spent so much time in this culture that I had forgotten about the fact that in the Bible, do you ever see people being spoken to through visions? and dreams? 
Well, frankly, it's all over the place, but I had a secular mentality that said that God doesn't work in that. Well, not that God doesn't work in that way, but I would never expect it. Well, God does. So think about this, friends. The cultural mandate is the vehicle to the mandate of the Great Commission. And when you're doing both, faithful to the Scriptures, relevant to the culture, you will see transformation in others people, other people's lives, but you're also going to see transformation in your own life. It's going to change how you look at God as you reach out to others. So I hope you continue to be a Great Commission church, but I hope you also use the cultural mandate as your vehicle. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for these precious friends who put up with a kind of a long sermon today. Uh, and I hope I haven't made a problem there. But Lord, I just pray that you'd lead these friends uh, in evangelism right here to learn the cultures around them. And we've got lots of refugees. We've got immigrants. We've got Hindus. We've got Buddhists. We've got Muslims. Uh, we've got atheists, lots and lots of atheists. Uh, Lord, help us to know. Bring us to the golf club. Bring us to the Y. Bring us to the coin club. Bring us to the place where we can be together with people that don't know you and help us to learn how to make that message make sense, being faithful to your word, but also using the opportunities that you give us to make the gospel make sense to the people that we work with. And Lord, for Tom and Gretchen and myself today as we meet a lot of secular people, God, give us grace to find some ways to relevantly share the message of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.